Chapter Two of The Sick Man's Comfort Book by Reverend P. B. Power. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Two Hindrances to Our Believing That God Is a God of Comfort. When the sun shines brightly, its warm beams draw up the damp fogs from the earth, and then they often obscure its luster. And when a lamp is lit, the brighter it shines, the more insects gather round it. And so the brighter any truth of God, the more does Satan endeavor to gather about it such mists as will obscure it, if indeed he cannot extinguish it altogether. And so we may expect to find that there are many hindrances to a full belief that God is a God of comfort. I am not in any wise surprised that it should be so, and I would be instrumental by God's blessing in removing them. Before we can remove these hindrances, we must see them. And what are they? Well, one great hindrance is our sense of demerit, how very unworthy we are of comfort at all, and especially of such a one as God taking it in hand to comfort us. About that unworthiness there cannot be the shadow of a doubt. It is quite right that you should feel that you are not worthy of anything good from God at all. So far from finding fault with the feeling, it is a blessed one to start with. And if unhappily you had it not, I should have had to say, we cannot advance even the first step into God's comfort until we get to see and believe this, for God will not have any man talk or think of merit. Merit I have none to bring, only to thy cross I cling. Those are the sentiments of such as are fit for comfort, and are sure to get it. So now, first of all, be very thankful that you feel undeserving of any comfort, or anything else that is good. That in itself should bring you some comfort. For if you feel this, you have not to go through all the lowering and teaching dealings of God by which he takes the pride out of people. If you are already empty, God has not to empty you. And let me tell you, my dear reader, that if you did not feel so unworthy of comfort, there is no telling what discipline you may not have had to go through. You might have been made ten times more uncomfortable than you are now. The law of God as broken, and you as the breaker, may have been shown in such terrible colors as to break you up altogether. You may have been brought into deeper waters in the way of illness, even than those in which you are now. I am glad God has not had to deal more heavily with you on this point. He filleth the hungry with good things, but the rich he sends empty away. This poor man cried unto the Lord, and the Lord delivered him from all his troubles. I am no more worthy to be called thy son, there was the sense of demerit in the prodigal, and we know how blessedly it ended with him. Well, you are the hungry man, and the poor man, and the prodigal son, and so you shall be filled, and delivered, and received. There is something else which you will be sure to find hindering you from believing that God can possibly be a God of comfort to you. You know that you now have a depraved, suspicious nature. As soon as Adam fell, he became suspicious of God, and all his posterity have inherited this suspicion from him. Indeed, suspicion is a part of the temptation with which Eve was first assailed, for when Satan told her that God did know in the day she and Adam ate of the tree, then their eyes should be opened, and they should be as God's knowing good and evil, what is this but infusing a suspicion into the woman's mind, that God grudged her this knowledge, and was afraid of her becoming like himself? This element of suspicion was strong in the first temptation, and it has continued strong ever since. Therefore it is no wonder if you suspect God, and have hard thoughts of him, 
God is not the least surprised at this. Now here is an evil, plain and well-defined, against which we must fight. We must not be always suspecting God. If he says one thing to us, we must not think that he means another. We must not suppose that he is double-minded in any of his ways. We must say to ourselves, He said so and so, and therefore he means it. I'll take him at his word. I won't go about seeking to put two or three meanings on his plain declarations. What he says, I will take in the plain English of it. We must not go about looking for double meanings and limitations and all sorts of things out of the common. The more we keep in the common road of speech and meaning with God, the better. Now think of that, dear friend, and do not suspect God any more. It is partly because of this suspicion that we misunderstand God, and wherever there is misapprehension, there is confusion and trouble. There is one more hindrance out of many which I would mention, and that is the old bad habit of not looking to him for what is good. This old suspicious and misunderstanding nature of ours used to make us think that God was the last person to whom we could look for what was good. If we wanted judgment and anger for sin and punishment and such things, then he was the quarter in which to look for it, but certainly not for good things. And yet, when he revealed himself to Moses, what do we read as his glory? When the Israelites were under the divine hand, suffering severely from God himself for their sin, what, humanly speaking, could be more unlikely than that from God himself should come their help? Yet see what is said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 27, etc., and the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. And there ye shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear, nor eat nor smell. Now, whence are they to find help? They are to look to him for it. But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. When thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, and shalt be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers which he sware unto them. What God says as plainly as possible is this, You have offended against me, but it is to me you must look. O Israel, said he in Hosea chapter 13 verse 9, Thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thy help. But perhaps you say, I never thought much of God. I never used to look at him. Well, that has been very bad in the past. But what we are concerned with is the present. The past is dead and gone, and let the dead bury their dead. We cannot alter the bad and foolish past. It will always remain what it was. But what we are concerned with is that it should not carry itself on into the present, that it should not hurt us now, that it should be indeed a past. Now, say to yourself, that is a bad old habit of mine, not looking to God. I must break with it altogether. Let him now make all things new with me. This foolish and ungainful past has no right to put a claim upon the present. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now, when difficulties arise, they are very apt to discourage. That is their natural tendency. A discouraged man is always a weak man. This Satan knows very well, and therefore he puts all sorts of discouragements in the way of our going to God for comfort. If you find one reason rising up after another in your mind, why you should not look to God to comfort you, instead of being downhearted, 
say, this is the most natural thing in the world, precisely what I might have expected. This is part of the old bad way which I am abandoning. I think Satan must see I am in earnest in looking to God by his raising up so many obstacles in my path. I have no doubt, my friend, that you have a great many discouragements. Was ever anything great and abiding brought about without them? They are the very atmosphere in which what is great and good and enduring is perfected. Draw courage from discouragement. Say, Satan sees I am on the right road now and is trying to hinder me all he can. Straight is my gate and narrow is my way, and that is a good sign that the end of the way is right. You must not condemn yourself. You have done that once. Let it be once and for all. If you spend all your time in condemning yourself, you shall have none to spend time in finding God. I do not believe that God is well pleased with a man's spending all his time in self-condemnation. He wills him to live in the spirit of self-condemnation. How indeed can he live in anything else? But to be always moaning and condemning himself, I cannot think is what he wills as his people's lot. I think God might well say to us, What? All looking at self and never a look at me? What? Look at me, and never a bit of comfort out of it. Are your sins of more importance than my grace? Are they to occupy all the ground, and no room be left for me to act in comfort and blessing, the way in which I love to act? Be sure of this. Something more than your sins must be manifested if God is to be glorified. He will be more glorified by your being comforted than by your continually refusing to be comforted, or crying out that you are unworthy to be comforted. Self-condemnation is very good in its place, but it is very bad out of its place. And it is out of its place when we make it so big that it can hide out the comfort of God. We may put a penny piece so close to our eyes as to hide out the sun itself, and we may put our little selves into such a position as to hide out God. Moreover, you must not give up in this matter of comfort or in any point of the divine life because you do not seem to get on. Often we are getting on when we do not know that we are. At any rate, God is not changed, nor are his mercies dependent upon our getting on. This is a measuring of ourselves by ourselves, and such is not the measure of our Lord. Nor may you have low and desponding thoughts, because you do not experience any spiritual ecstasies. There are many dear children of God who have never known anything approaching to a spiritual ecstasy at all nor attained to anything beyond a calm and peaceful trust in him. They lay still on their beds in peace. They believed in a glory to be revealed. They believed in a future and were content to wait for it. Ecstasies might be very bad for us here. Some of the most favored servants of God and most consistent Christians never had any ecstasy in their lives. And some who had gone up to very high ecstasies have gone down very low in despondencies. Do not count ecstasies. Do not look upon them as signs. Do not consider them in any wise as essential to the Christian life or the comfort thereof. If God give them, it needs that he gives grace with them, and who knows, but it needs that he give discipline too. You remember St. Paul's being caught up into the third heaven and hearing words which it was not lawful to utter, and to make that ecstasy safe, he had to receive a thorn in the flesh, which, though he prayed thrice for its removal, was not taken away. Lay your account for being a hindered man, and often say, when clouds come between you and God, Ah, that is a hindrance. It does not change God, it does not change my position toward God, but it is a hindrance and is doing a hinderer's work.
and when the hindrances come, let them not daunt us. Let us say, these are what we are to expect, but they have no power as against the Lord. Millions of hindered men have passed out of their clouds and sorrows. Millions have entered the land where there are hindrances no more. How could I expect that Satan would allow me to have any good thing unmolested? I must carry on the Christian warfare on my bed, the same as if I was in the world. Sooner or later I too shall have my full triumph, and shall shout, Thanks be to God, which giveth me the victory through my Lord Jesus Christ. End of chapter 2